got friends only want to talk business. I got expensive, because when is expensive? I got expensive, because when is expensive? I've been reading all the work. And I've been shutting out the stars. Yeah. When it rain and it pours. Yeah. And I'm ready for some more. Yeah. And I've been reading Welcome to Put That Coffee Down. I'm Dooner here with Kevin Hill. <laughs> What's up, Kevin? You went out to you went out to Palm Springs at the perfect time. It is 28 degrees here in Chattanooga this morning. This is not the dream they sold me when I came here from Boston. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be in the south, and you had snow what, a day or two ago. I mean, nothing sucked, but it's still snow. I mean, who wants snow? I have 78 degrees, 80 degrees. Perfect golf weather, go out, you don't even sweat and play 18 holes. I'll tell you, the one nice thing about it, the big difference between being here, though, and up in Boston is that you know that it's going to warm up. It's going to warm up a little bit again uh, <laughs> when um, <laughs> it's going to warm up a little again. So you don't have that that high level of uh, of oppression knowing you're stuck that way until, you know, mid-April. I got to think, you know, we, we like doing some debates on here. And right before we went on air, I was reading this post by uh, the Morning Brews business barista, right? Alex Lieberman. He said, do you put, I got a question for you. Do you put on your socks before or after you put on your pants? I, you know what? I put on my socks before I put on my pants. And it's a superstition that I have. And I don't know why I have it. I've had it most of my life. Maybe it's because of baseball. Maybe it's because of any other reasons, but I'm, I'm, I, it's kind of like my only OCD that I really have is that I, I feel it's bad luck if I put on my socks after I put on my pants. Okay. See, I, I'm the opposite. I feel like uh, it is against uh, it is, it's against a rule. I behold very strongly in life that when you're not wearing pants, you should not be wearing socks, Kevin Hill. So therefore well, you, you got to put I your mean, pants they, on first. I, I guess so, but you kind of already know what you're going to do before you, you do that. But, so the good thing about being in Chattanooga or, or Palm Springs or places warm and not winter in Boston is you very rarely wear socks. That's true. That's true. Right? So you might not have to worry about it that often. Uh, you might not. Well, Kevin, there's some not. big. Most of the days I don't wear socks. Kevin, there's some big news that broke. You can put that in your CRM. Maybe you can put that in Salesforce if I was calling on you. Yeah. Kevin Hill puts on socks before he puts on his pants. Little uh, little inside <laughs> baseball I'd have on you. But, you know, Slack, right? Slack, Salesforce, getting into a marriage over here. Big deal. What, $27.7 billion? Uh, the deal should consummate, right, in uh, 2022. So it's not completely finalized. But they say that uh, the second quarter of Salesforce fiscal year is uh, – will end on July 31st, 2021. This is going to be this deal is going to be reviewed by the Biden administration, but if all goes well, it's going to go through. What do you make of the deal? You think it's a good move for both sides? I think it's a good move for both sides, and I think it can all be attributed to Salesforce new sponsorship of put that coffee down. I think that was the genesis of the entire thing. Don't you, dinner? <laughs> well, you know, I what I <laughs> what, what I like about this move is um you know, information is getting so fragmented, right? And we use both Salesforce and we use Slack. So if they can create some synergy, some integration there, it's going to be very easy to take a lot of the communication we do internally and bring that over into the CRM, that information, especially stuff that we may put in on. I mean, on our end, it's usually on guests and stuff like that. But I can easily see this applying to 
to sales or whatever else you use. And, you know, Salesforce is a really interesting company now. You know, a lot of people just think of them as a CRM, especially in the sales side. But I had a guest on from there last month on What the Truck, and they were talking about all the inroads they're making in logistics with with freight giants like Maersk. And they're trying to be a complete end-to-end solution provider. And I think Slack is, uh, you know, an answer to what Microsoft is doing with Teams. It is. An, it's an answer to, to what Microsoft is doing as Teams and bringing that, that one, one-stop solution that the Salesforce is, is just not a CRM. Uh, they have ESP, which is an email service provider. They have you know, a CDP, which is a customer development program for, for media companies like uh, FreightWaves. And they, they're snapping up some really great brands, really great user bases uh, to, to, to bolt everything together to, to really you know, compete with teams and, and to dominate that. Yeah, and and you talk about that the DAU, the daily active users. So in this purchase, mm-hmm. what Salesforce is getting is 12 million daily users who use the Slack platform. Now I'm sure if you have the Venn diagram of both, there's certainly some crossover as there would be here at Freightwaves. But for a company that's been around for a, a while now, like Salesforce, it has to be kind of enticing to tap into a, a newer disruptor like Slack and bring in some of those uh, some of those accounts that may be on that side that you that you could have missed. Yeah, you know, and I think Salesforce has a lot to offer on the back end, uh, becoming more efficient. Uh, giving Slack, you know, basically it's a great move for Slack as well, because Slack is going to get all of Salesforce users and that, that cross-marketing and cross-sales uh, opportunities with that to, to really bump up that 18 million uh, daily users and, and maybe double or even uh, a triple that in a very short time frame. Yeah, and you know, some people... I, some of the comments I've read online almost belittle the deal a little bit, saying that, you know, they're they're paying a lot of money for what is essentially a chat app. But I think Slack has not been fully tapped into. And I think that there's a lot more that, that you can do at Slack. And I think that having a partner like Salesforce, they'll really be able to exploit those those avenues. A lot of times I'm in Slack and I'm like, you know, I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. And now having a mm-hmm. development team with the experience of, of Salesforce joining up, I think that it can be a, a positive, especially for users of either platform. Yeah, I think it's it's really beneficial for, for Slack, as you said, it's a, you know, is a one-tool type of, of, of software that was out there, but with the, the partnership or the acquisition by Salesforce, that they have a lot of other tools uh, to, to draw from, so they don't have to develop those in-house, that they can just vote on to that Salesforce ecosystem. That's really what Salesforce has been building over the last few years, is an ecosystem of SaaS, uh, you know, office products to go after other competitors and also to, to, to be that one-stop solution that corporations can go to and, and fill out all their, all their needs from project management or communication tools like, like Slack that really eliminate emails to uh, whatever is down on the, the list of uh, businesses' needs on, a, on the enterprise side. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest needs that we all have on sales, on operations, regardless of what side of the house you're on, is just that fragmentation of information and needing a place to bucket all of it. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I I waste searching for information and not remembering if the thread started in Slack or if it started in email or if it was a LinkedIn messenger thread or a Twitter DM. It it can become a bit of a challenge. So having one more resource to help bucket that stuff is definitely a, a plus for me. It's, a, it's a really a, a huge plus and something that we talk about in this industry and in all industries and, and what I did the audio podcast for Put That Copy Down last week. So you can go to, to Freightcast and, 
and uh, Apple Podcasts and, and download that with Nick Jangles at Kinetic and talking about the one screen solution. How many applications, how many tabs do we have open at any one time? I'm sitting here, I, I can look at my computer here and just in this one Chrome, out of the three Chrome uh, browsers I probably have open, I have about 12 tabs. It's just toggling back and forth because you you can't find everything in one spot. You have to, to go through, you know, go through email, then Slack, and then, you know, uh, you know any other application that I have open, uh, Chartbeat, things like that, to, to define the, the information you need. So anything that, that really streamlines that and puts it all in one place or one screen, that one screen solution is, is a bonus and, and people will pay a premium for that. Well, here's what Salesforce CEO had to say about this deal before we close out on this topic. Is uh, He says, Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield and his team have built one of the most beloved platforms in enterprise software history with an incredible ecosystem around it. There's that word ecosystem again. This is a match made in heaven. Together, Salesforce and Slack will shape the future of enterprise software and transform the way everyone works in the all-digital work from anywhere in the world. I'm thrilled to welcome Slack to the Salesforce Ohana once the transaction closes. And, you know, that's a good segue to get a little bit deeper into this. So we're talking about 2021 and what selling is going to look like. And spoiler alert, not that different than, you know, what selling has looked like since April onward here in the United States of America or in most places of the world, especially now as the coronavirus rages again. And um, some of the biggest topics this year, you know, you talk about Salesforce Slack. Here's another one for you, Kevin. He'll Zoom, right? People very reliant on Zoom right now. They've been doing wonderfully. They brought in $777 million in, uh, what, the last quarter, which is 367% year-over-year growth. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. You know, 367%, and it goes back to the Salesforce Slack. It's a growing market. This is a really a booming time because of you know, the pandemic is work at home, the technologies uh, that, that people maybe didn't want to adopt or are slow to adopt, that they had to adopt these. And, and Zoom is one of those. And and it, it reverberates down through the services, travel. We'll talk about travel in just a second. And, you know, people are, are turning to these new technologies or sometimes old technologies, but but new applications for them and in really becoming uh, expert users at doing business over Zoom, Google Meet, anything, anything that has video, video-based calls. Uh, it, it's, really, it's really soaring right now. It's a growth market. You know, so when you look at the stocks of these two, when you talk about Slack, they went public last year, right? It took a it took a little while for them to get some traction. And, you know, they're stuck around in that mid $20 range for a while until the deal was announced with Salesforce. And then it's up to like $44. I think it's sitting at right now, right around there. You look at Zoom, though. They were worth $15.9 billion last year, right? But now, what are they, $115 billion market value? Pretty incredible when you also think that there were incumbents in place like Skype, you of Google Meet, you know, it's, this isn't like a uh, an exclusive platform video chatting or video conferencing. It's not, you know, and you know, Skype should be the dominant player in this. Really, if you would think about it, they were the first first one there that had a dominant market. But you know, as as technology uh, costs went down, you know, fiber optics, Wi-Fi, all of that got thrown into the mix, and the, the cost got drove down. A lot of new entrants came in, and Zoom was one of the, the, the smart ones marketing and, and they've just taken market share from, from all their competitors. It's, it's really been a really good boom story and they're in the right place at the right time for 2020 and they've really benefited from it. 
Yeah, it, it is. It is completely remarkable, especially when you think of the the competition. That was out there. And, you know, Kevin, these digital tools, these digital tools are becoming more and more paramount and more and more important because, uh, you know, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, right? He said on Tuesday that he that he predicted over fit last Tuesday. That was he over 50 percent of business travel and over 30 percent of days in the office will go away in the pandemic's aftermath. Right. It doesn't seem like he's that far off from this study that you sent me this morning. He's not that far off whatsoever, and this is what other people are finding right now too. Is that, that you know people are learning to do business over uh, over video online in the virtual world, and you know the, the the days of having travel two days out of your week to travel to do a one hour meeting, you don't have to do that anymore. You can if you want to, I suppose, and 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 people will go back to traveling, but I don't think it'll be as frequent. I, I think people have learned how to harness technology and the, the virtual world to to close deals. You know, and he also said that businesses, I mean, this is from from Bill Gates, he said that businesses would have a very high threshold on what they would approve for travel. Do you think that that, I mean, I think that's as much as a cost-saving thing as companies are realizing that a lot of this discretionary spending was unnecessary, right? And they're making they're making more money by not having to send people on airplanes every time they, they feel the need to get some frequent flyer miles. Exactly right. I, I think it's it's it's. You know, in every recession, what you find is that one of the first things that gets slashed is travel. Uh, and that's what you're finding now. You know, we were in a recession. Um, it looks like a V-shaped recovery right now. Uh, but the pandemic has, has kept people grounded. And I, I think once once this is lifted, you know, in the next year or so, you're going to see more and more travel. But I don't think it's going to be a, a, as frequent as, as in the past. I, I think there will be some you know, some opportunities to, to beat your competitors by being in person in the next year or two. But I don't I, I, I don't think we're going to come back up to the, the normal world pre-pandemic levels of, of business travel, especially intra-company travel that that you can you can do over a Zoom call very easily. You, you might not need to drop travel as much. So I, I think everyone's travel budgets uh, time on the road is going to get cut. Um, I've been talking to my sister about that this week because she loves to travel and her her clients are her friends. So it's great for her to get out. And she's uh, she, she's still a little hesitant about accepting uh, doing Zoom meetings and, and really embracing that. But uh, in the future, you're going to have to. Wait, why is she hesitant to that? Because I think that'll be a big theme in this show, especially as we move into selling in 2021, is that the, uh, you know, it's not the new normal anymore. It, it's just normal. I mean, this is what it is, and this mm -hmm. is how it's going to be moving into next year. You're going to have to develop that skill set of being comfortable going on Zoom calls, learning multiple platforms, learning Google, because, you know, no one, we're not, we're not all on the same page on these things. You know, some people use Teams, some people use Meet, some people use, uh, some people use Zoom. You got to figure out not just how to use the platforms, but also how to present yourself on it. And for many of us, mm -hmm. do sales calls and demos over this medium instead of in person. Yeah, you know, so uh, she'll she'll embrace it. She'll, she'll, I don't know if she'll ever like it, though, right? I mean, when, when you have a big, fat, expense account and uh, your clients are your friends and you can take them out to dinner and, and entertain and, and, and get to know them, uh, you can't really... You can replace that with Zoom calls, but there's that human element out there that, that you can't. Uh, but I, I think that's the reason why sales travel, business travel, it'll never die. 
you know, you always need to go meet people face to face, but you won't have to do it as often. You might not have to do it when you first close somebody. You might not have to do it on customer success and account management to, to follow up with people. You can do most of that on the phone, uh, just like we're doing right now. You know, you can do it on a Zoom call, Google Meet, you know, uh, just all video calls. Um, but but then it'll just just it'll just peel back to the frequency that that people will have to go out and, and meet face to face, which I think is a good thing. I mean, it's going to save a, a lot of money and it'll it'll help increase margins and bring down uh, the cost of a lot of products and services out there. You know, I think it was Ric Flair who said, "You don't have to love it, you don't have to like it, but you have to learn to you have to learn to accept it." And he probably That's threw it. a woo in there at the end, Kevin Hill. He probably did. Uh, a, a great Ric Flair woo. Speaking of woos, latest attempt to woo business travelers back to the skies, COVID-19 safety tours of planes and facilities. They were talking about this on MSNBC this morning. Would you take them up on one of these tours? It just seems like something I, you know, I'm either going to travel or I'm not. I'm not going to the airport and taking tours. No, I'm not going to the airport and taking tours. I, I've been on two flights since the, the the pandemic, and one of them was coming out to Palm Springs. And it's it's kind of, uh, I, I didn't really get nervous about it. Uh, I think flying is, I will say, flying is pretty safe. It's, it's congregating and, and going to places with with a lot of people. Once you get there, like a huge Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. Uh, as long as you're wearing your mask, you're washing your hands. I. I you're either going to fly or not. I don't think a tour of facilities is going to affect my decision one way or another. And frankly, it doesn't really get me excited to to go on a tour. Here's some key findings from this report on air travel that was in the Wall Street Journal. Tell me what sticks out to you. But it was analyst reveals a potential overall loss of airline business trips ranging from that low of 19 percent to that high of 36 percent. Travel for, for sales activity and securing clients is the largest category of business air travel, 25 percent of total. It's projected to show a modest loss ranging from zero up to 20 percent. So. Business air travel will be down, but maybe not as critically in that point. Is, is that what the report's saying? I, you know what? I, I think the report's saying that we're going to travel less frequency to, to close deals. And I, I think 25% reduction in business travel is going to hurt the airlines. It's, and it also gave the analysis of the airlines having to, to raise prices because uh, expensive business travel tickets subsidize cheap vacation and, and leisure travel. So we'll probably see uh, maybe a little bit of increase in, in, in pricing and reduced options of, of flights. I, I think they've cut flights by 75% right now on the, the domestic side, and those aren't going to return in full force at, at all. So we're going to have limited choices of when we can fly. It's probably going to be a little bit more expensive on average uh, to do that. So I, I think those are the, the, the real key points that I brought out of this. You know, people have real lives, too, outside of work. They want to travel to see family. We actually saw this over the weekend, right? Close to 1.2 million people were screened by the TSA. Uh, that's the most since March 16th, still down 60% from the 2.9 million people that the TSA had screened over Thanksgiving weekend. Now, I got to ask you, do you think this is indicative of a healthy air freight market coming back, or is it indicative? Is it indicative of people just being sick of locked up? It's Thanksgiving, and damn it, people want to see their families. 
I, I think the second, I, I think people are just sick of being locked up, but it's still down 60%. Only 40% of the people who flew last Thanksgiving uh, holiday week flew this one. Um, we've only hit three times in the last six or seven months of a million, and once in October and twice this last week. And it's already, I, I had the TSA uh, passenger check-in data up while I go, and it's already down to about 700,000 again. So yeah. only about 40% of people are flying, and this was, you know, certainly Thanksgiving is the most active travel week in, in, in the country uh, traditionally. And it was pretty, you know, we hit a million, but we, we didn't go over a million very, I, I think it was 1.1 million uh, for for one of those days. So I, I think more people on average, or more people, you know, compared to earlier in 2020 were, were flying, but it was still 40%. So even if you go back a month ago, two months ago, you're looking at somewhere between 30 or 40 percent of of the passenger counts in 2020 as compared to 2019. That really hasn't uh, that that percentage change hasn't really jumped at all. It's just, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is a a very busy travel travel season. I I think it's coming back down uh, right now. And we're still stuck in that 30 to 40 percent range. And I don't see that really escaping that uh, until sometime next year. Rhonda says that you know, tours are a waste of time. Yeah. It's probably like one of those CT pat factory tours where they, they clean up, they make it look really nice, you know, cause they yeah, know yeah. you're, you're going to be going to look there, you know, JetBlue airways, this is all impacting the airlines. JetBlue airways had a very grim prognosis on Monday. They forecast the revenue would fall 70% in the fourth quarter compared with the same time last year. Uh, this is worse than their previous forecast of 65% down. They said booking trends remain volatile and the company continues to believe demand and revenue recovery will be nonlinear through the fourth quarter and beyond. So a lot of trouble there. And there's one, uh, there was one other aspect to, uh, to this pandemic affecting all of us. And that is working at home versus working in the office. And in terms of uh, office space, things don't look so great either. 25.7%. That is the percentage of American workers who have returned to offices as of November 18th, according to a security forum that monitors access card swipes in more than 2,500 office buildings in 10 of largest cities. This was after climbing since April. There was a here in the Wall Street Journal. It was showing it was going upward right until we hit November, Kevin. And mm-hmm. then we are back down to, oh, geez, this is falling back to near March levels. It, it is. You know, you had that, that big spike, um, or relatively big spike, I, sh- I should say, uh, around April or, or, or when people, you know, when, when the first lockdowns kind of eased up. But that hasn't gained any traction whatsoever. As you said, only 25% of workers have returned back. And it goes back to the Bill Gates, you know, 30 percent was it 30. I think it was 30 percent of of office time is going to evaporate. And you're going to be doing that uh, working at home. I mean, I, I think we all have the gear to, to do that now. Uh, and we have the training. We have the expertise to do it. And why 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 drive into the office five days a week? You know, you think about the savings with infrastructure on, on wear and tear. And congestion on on streets, and you know that's great for for truck drivers. Less less congestion is always good, and you know th- there's a lot of benefits from not having to show up five days a week, maybe two days a week, three days a week. Have have a little bit of flex time. Uh, it, it has benefits that ripple up throughout uh, you know the, the American economy. Yeah, you know, see, it's funny too because this survey that I was looking at, and we're looking at it at time now. 
People are a little sick of working at home at least all the time. In fact, three in four mm-hmm. workers want to return to the office at some point in the future. And uh, according to a survey by the firm JL, they surveyed over 2,000 workers. And a lot of them said not to return full time, but they still want that connection. And what was really interesting about this article and the people that they were talking to in it was a lot of the workers who are pro returning to work, not the 25% who are like, no way, I never want to go back in that place again. I am perfectly cool being at home. But for the other 75%, they were saying a lot of things from, you know, my home is supposed to be a place of relief, but now it's a, it's the center of my life. It's the point of stress. I have to bring work in there. I have to be around my kids and all of those kind of things. So that can be a challenge. But what workers are saying when they go back, they don't want necessarily the traditional, like, uh, open office space and the way things were. What they want is socialization and and team building being prioritized. So building spaces that people want to come into in flexible means. And we can take some of those Zoom meetings that we're all having and finally do some of those in person. I think that's not necessarily a bad idea. And being this far into the pandemic, like even here at Freightways, I know like we see when new people get hired. Right. It's like, great. But, Mm -hmm. you know, who is that person? You have no idea. Yeah, you know, you have no idea. And unless you are on Zoom meeting, um, you you probably won't get introduced or or, or meet with them. And and usually that's a little bit more formal and you don't have a chance to to, to really get, get to know coworkers, which is which can be uh, a hindrance in, in, in certain ways. So it's always good to know who you're talking with, who your coworkers are, having some kind of a personal connection, just like any other client or, or, or customer. Uh, your, your colleagues, you, you need that, that same type of um, you know, empathy and a, an emotional uh, connection too. So I, it's going to be a challenge. It, it definitely is. I, my my one question about the survey and and workspaces is, you know, maybe not the open spaces, but what exactly does that space look like? That's more uh, conducive to to what people want. I, I'm not really sure. I, I'm kind of foggy on that idea. Yeah, I don't know. And I mean, in logistics, what will it look like? Like, I've been a lot of logistics offices and not a lot of thought is put into office design. Some of the newer ones, great. Some of the like inside the box, you know, we went to Global Trends, fantastic design, fantastic layout. But a lot of other ones are like, you know what? It's desks and it's people and it's phones. There's not a ton of uh, design influence put into there. But you know what? We have a guest coming into us, not via Zoom, but from our own uh, video chat software. It is (laughs) It's Blythe Brumleaf. She's the founder of Brumleaf Brands LLC. Blythe, thank you so much for taking a little time out of your day to join us. Thank you for having me. Ooh, and I like the uh, I like the the plug for Space Waves there with your nice NASA jersey. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm super pumped. I, I I remember when you guys originally announced it a few months back, and and I've had this marked on my calendar for a very long time. So I'm not only ready with the sweatshirt, but I have also a coffee mug. I don't know if you guys can see it very well, but a little rocket yeah. ship coffee mug wow. that I got from uh, the the Kennedy Space Center from a trip over the summer. I love it. I love it. So people are not awesome. familiar. Blythe has, a, Blythe has a super interesting background. I mean, for, she was a blogger for a while. She she did marketing for a logistics firm. She's she's broad, she's done broadcasting for the Jaguars, the uh, amazing franchise that is the Jaguars, <laughs> <laughs> especially over the past 10 years. Um, Better days are ahead. <laughs> <laughs> But eventually you struck out on your own, right? And you, and you started a few of your own businesses. Give us a little bit of an elevator pitch on you. 
Sure. So I started about 10 years ago as an executive assistant at a 3PL here in Jacksonville, Florida. I had a little bit of a side hustle working as a sports and entertainment blogger. And back then, this social media and content marketing was very new. And so when my boss found out of what my side hustle was, he was like, well, you should start doing the marketing for us. And so here I am, you know, a, you know, a 25 year old doing you know, marketing for a logistics firm that's making, you know, 140 million annual every single year. And and, and it was um, it was a crash course in the world of logistics marketing. Unfortunately, that business ended up closing, and so that led to a path where locally here I was able to earn a role as editor in chief at a magazine. Also earned a role with a radio broadcasting team here in Jacksonville, Florida. And it was about three years ago that I started out on my own with Brumley Brands, and then that evolved into Digital Dispatch, which is uh, my main focus as of right now and for the past two years. Wow, what did you learn? What did you learn when you started marketing? Because, you know, in freight marketing, especially for it's changing a little bit for a long time, though, freight marketing was like, here's a picture of a truck. <laughs> yes. Um, the, uh, fortunately, that still exists to this day. Uh, what I have seen the transition, though, is using, you know, the standard stock photos of pictures of a truck. And that's evolved more into companies starting to allow their employees a little bit more freedom, especially in the social media space where they can freely talk about what they do and how they do it and how they solve problems for their customers. And then they tie it back into, you know, say the company LinkedIn page. So it is changing. It is. I, I think COVID sort of uh, put it on a fast track, but it is changing for the better. So supply side, going back to websites, so you, you do a lot of website design. What, what's the number one? And you kind of said uh, pictures, but on, on the text and, and the copywriting part, what was the number one, uh, number one mistake that you find in trucking and logistics on the website and how, how it's laid out and how the copy is? But what, what's, think- what's, yeah, go ahead. As far as the the copy is concerned, it's it's kind of one or the other. It's either really long winded and way too much text, or it's a site that's built on like a Weebly or a Wix site, and it's not. It doesn't look as polished. I just saw a website yesterday that was just one page long, and it had some PDF links, and that was it. And this is a big time company with you know more than three hundred trucks, and it was one of those moments where it's like, whew, I I'm, I imagine that that's worked for you for a little while, but it won't necessarily work for you in the future if you're looking for, you know, future recruiting efforts. Um, a really nice, polished-looking website really helps and goes a long way, especially when it comes to driver recruiting, because they want to know what kind of business they're working for and employee recruiting. You guys mentioned earlier on the show how everybody is working, you know, from home, and th- your website is a great opportunity to show off and connect with other employees using your website as that home base. You know, you had a video, you, you had a video up on LinkedIn, Blight, that really, that really sung to me and, and kind of goes with what you're saying here. But you were talking about playbooking, not by looking at the competition in freight, especially when it comes to marketing, because a lot of marketing in freight isn't great. You'll end up just posting a picture of a truck with some long winded copy or some, some obscure copy <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You actually, you see that quite a bit in freight tech too. Well, just a copy that's like, that doesn't mean anything if you know anything about freight. Um, but you said, look, look to outside media. And, and I have to agree with that. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's what I do when I when my approach to producing shows. But what do you think the marketers in freight and salespeople in freight can can learn from that? Dive a little deeper. 
I, I think in with respect to the freight market, I think people play it safe a little too often. And what they do, what they ignore are the outside forces, because what a lot of the, the great marketing that you see eventually makes its way over to B2B marketing, but it starts with the B2C aspect first. And I, I think as marketers, even in the logistics space, you need to be thinking in a B2C way first. And so look at some of these brands that are out there that are doing it really well. I, I use the example of Nike, how they they don't necessarily sell their products. They sell the story of the person wearing their products. And I think that that's an important lesson that a lot of freight tech companies can, can use. They can use the stories of the problems that their software solves for their customers. And it, people are going to relate to that a lot more than just a list of features. And, and I think that that's a real missed opportunity is that a lot of companies are playing it safe where they could be looking more towards, you know, the sports and entertainment aspect. I think you guys do a great job of incorporating sports and also incorporating, you know, things like Star Wars into your, into your messaging and into your show format. Don't be afraid to think outside of the box and think of those water cooler conversations and move them into your market. And you've you've taken you've borrowed a lot from the B two C on your newest venture, the preschool playbook. Uh, doing a, doing a launch, doing uh, doing that week long launch, kind of doing a beta and a testing and, and getting that off the ground. What are some of the lessons you did a podcast recently on the lessons learned? But share with our audience some of those those lessons you learned uh, launching freight school playbook. There were a few lessons that, that I learned because for, for me as a marketer, I, I believe it's very important to practice what you preach. I naturally can't do everything that I preach to my clients, but I, I feel like it's very important for me to be out there creating content and creating products because if I don't know what works, I can't preach to them of, of what they should be doing. And so Freight School Playbook is my first foray into a digital marketing course environment. And, and there were a lot of lessons learned. I, I think one of my big ones was waiting too long to launch. I, I wanted everything to be perfect, but you don't learn until you launch. And, and so I wish I would have launched a little bit sooner. And I think that there was another, I, I think that I should have launched with what I like to call a sexier title. I launched with a couple courses that if you kind of look at them, it's kind of like a yawn fest, you know, how to audit your website and how to create a content marketing plan. Some of those courses I believe are very important, especially starting from the ground up. It's very important to know how to audit your brand in order to know where to go in the future because you want to know what's already working for you and what's not working. And that's essential whenever you're moving into adding more products and, and more services to your business. Uh, and I think another thing that I learned is to just try, just do it. And, and also, as far as the advertising is concerned, don't think that advertising is going to solve every problem that you have. I, I was a little naive in that regard, thinking that I have my buyer personas worked out. I know who I'm selling to. I can just, you know, throw some money at an advertisement and, and it will just sell like hotcakes. And that's not the case. Advertising is a science. It's something that I have since started taking additional training on and, and learning the nuances between the creative and the first sentence that you use are all vastly important and where you do your testing matters. Uh, you should be doing your testing on a platform like Facebook instead of LinkedIn because LinkedIn is, is incredibly more expensive. So once you get that target audience and you get that messaging down on Facebook, try and transfer that messaging and that creative over to LinkedIn where it's a little bit more pricey in order to, to reach that same audience. 
No, you bring up a great point there, too, especially on Facebook and with, with Google ads, right? I mean, these are incredibly dense advertising platforms, and you can get a lot out of them. But you can if you come in very naive, right? If it's your first time using it, you'll end up spending a lot of money. I, I would yes, highly recommend con- oh, yeah. considering an agency or someone who knows what they're doing, because you might be shocked, especially if you don't, put, especially on Google, if you don't put a spending limit, you will be shocked at the amount of useless <laughs> click-throughs you got and the complete lack of sales you got, especially in logistics. It's tough to model a logistics, uh, the, the selling logistics and the placement of logistics ads just because of the key terms that are used they don't always work that well that that targeting so i would i would highly recommend using someone specialized <laughs> yes and, and I, I i attempted to do that as well but i should have been more direct with my expectations that was also a lesson that i've learned because I'm, I'm a big fan of using specialized freelancers specialized creatives and and but it's on me it, and especially for any other business out there that's considering outsourcing some of your marketing it is on you to be direct of what the goal is that you want to eventually come from those advertisements. But it's also, it's an important learning lesson that it isn't, it, it, it isn't a magic wand that's going to solve all of your problems. You need to really think of advertising as education at scale first, because most of the time people are just looking for information. And, and when you can be the person to provide that information, you are opening that door, that trust level with them. And so that eventually when they are ready to buy, they will be coming to you and you don't necessarily have to do as much outbound as as you would be fielding inbound. I think all three of us can, can relate to the expensive education of Google ads. Because <laughs> I, I have spent a lot of money on, on Google ads and I realized that I, I didn't have the money to really do good A-B testing and that I, I needed help with it. And <laughs> I, I kind of just, just let it go because I could never get it right. Um, but, but that brings up a, a, another good point that they just made on on inbound leads, or you, you in a podcast you did as well on inbound leads versus was it demand leads? Yeah, I, so I, I have. Marketing? It's essentially uh, the way I like to preach my marketing is that you want to win on every level before someone gets to Google. So pushing out that education at scale of, of what I was referring to earlier is really educating your buyer because they don't necessarily know that they have a problem yet, or they don't necessarily know that they're they're doing things incorrectly. I I, I look to eBooks a lot because I, I actually did a show on this recently where I, I posted a clip and I, I think some marketers may have taken it the wrong way because that's where you that that's your bread and butter as a marketer is getting those leads through the door and then you pass them off to sales but if you look at the data and you look at how well those ebooks eventually convert into customers the numbers just aren't there it's something like less than one percent of ebook download people eventually turn into a buying client. So it's one of those things that that we have to, as marketers, it's our job to dive into that data and to work with sales in order to find out what's really converting, what's really pushing people to request a quote, to book a demo. These types of options, you have to really work together closely with your marketing and sales departments. And I, I think especially for, for 2021, we really need to start looking at having brand ambassadors for every every single department within the company that can speak on behalf of those, those challenges and the, and the problems that they solve for customers from, from accounting to customer service, to, to the brokers on, on, on the phone all day with drivers. It, 
speaking to those problems and having those brand ambassadors will will really give everyone an opportunity to be a marketer and, and to be that person that has the megaphone for your company. Because the tools are out there for everyone to use. And it's a beautiful thing that we can use tools like LinkedIn and Twitter and and all of these other platforms and, and, and live video and podcasting. It's just a matter of, of training those employees to really hone in on that messaging. And the only way you get better and hone in on that messaging is by trial. Yeah. When you mentioned that too, I mean, how do you convince the marketer that has a very basic understanding of lead magnets, for example, and like, well, lead magnet, you make an ebook, you know, you put in your email address, bang, there you go, lead, you go and chase them down. How do you convince them that that isn't the best way to go about it? You really have to tell them to look at the data. I mean, what, what is the data telling you? And, and what? And you also should look at your own behavior whenever you're downloading an ebook. How many times have we all downloaded an ebook and then never went back and actually read it? So what happens in that process is that marketing thinks that they have a great lead and they pass it off to sales when that person is only looking for information and that's why they downloaded it. So when the sales lead reaches out to them sometimes 30 minutes after they filled out the damn form, it's one of those things where the, the, the buyer isn't ready to buy yet. They just want information. They want education. So there are, I think there are pathways to make the ebook successful, but I don't think you need to put it behind a paywall or, or gatekeep it in order to, to make that transaction successful. There is a method of getting your work, of getting your messaging out there and solving your problems and then creating that trust factors that when the person is ready to buy, and it might not be next week, it might not be six months from now, but a year from now, they're going to remember the helpful content that you've been consistently creating outside of one simple ebook. So you really have to look at your data and, and be honest with yourself because it's your job to, to find out what the numbers are telling you and what's working and what's not working. Yeah, you're talking about consistency, and, and that's something that, that we appreciate all the time, too, is you have to be consistent. And I, I think a lot of marketers, uh, you know, and whether that's from the finance department or, or what have you, are really tied to ROI. So that's where the ebooks come in, right? You, you have to, to take that lead and convert it to get your ROI on the ebook, but it, it goes, goes a little bit deeper and, and further than that, where you have to have consistent content across all kinds of media channels uh, to, to really be able to, to, to convert those cells. And a lot, of those, a lot of times it's hard to measure and you can't measure it from any one source. It's a combination, right? It really is a combination and you have to have a full understanding of what your company is trying to achieve. So for me as, as a marketer, I don't measure anything until I get somebody that requests a quote. They request a quote, request a quote for me or book an assessment with me. Then I, on those calls, I'm asking them, how did you hear about me? How, what made you reach out to me today? Uh, those are the questions that they answer. And if you ask those questions and if you get your sales team involved in asking those questions initially, then they'll, they're more likely to say, oh, I saw this great LinkedIn post that you did the other day, or I saw this video that you posted on YouTube. It really resonated with me. And then that's how you can really track the ROI of, of what you're creating. 
whenever you're creating content, you don't necessarily need to plan, well, I'm going to create this podcast and I expect to get 10 leads from this within a month or else it's a complete failure. That's not how content works. Content, you have to create it on a consistent basis. It has to be useful for your audience. And it also has to be entertaining and educational. There, the, the barrier of entry to command that kind of attention is so low right now because we have so many tools at our disposal in order to, to capture that attention. And once you've captured that attention enough to where they're going to book a demo, they're going to request a quote, then that's when you can start measuring your efforts and seeing what's working well and what's not. Because once you establish you know, a long-term content plan, say you're publishing a new podcast every single week for six months, then you're starting to flip the script a little bit where you're doing less cold calling, you're doing less cold outreach, and the people are starting to come to you for answers. And that's really the ethos of, of demand marketing. And, and, and that's what's worked for me for my entire career across multiple industries. And, and it's what works and it's what consistently I'm seeing working for people within this industry, especially the ones that have jumped on LinkedIn quick, that have jumped on the video aspect and podcasting and creating content. Those people are winning now and they're going to continue to win in 2021. With a caveat, though, you made a very interesting point recently, and it's one that's come up. I mean, it usually comes up in the context of like politically charged discussions of people being deplatformed. But you people have been shadow banned from Instagram just for using the word coronavirus for a while. YouTube, if you put the word coronavirus and it's just a news update on coronavirus, your your video would get buried. And what you were talking about was not being so reliant on the lawn you don't own. Right. Not building a house on land that's not yours. Dive a little deep on that. Sure. So, so to my earlier point, when I was talking about, you know, creating a home base and using your website as a home base, you can use all of these social media platforms as your distribution channels, but they all should have some kind of a funnel back to your website. And you should have goals set up on your website. It's pretty easy to do as far as Google is concerned. Um, I know some other marketing platforms that are out there. Reby Analytics is another one that I use in order to set up goals on your website. Where did those users come from? Did they follow you on social media? Did they fill out an email subscribe? Did they, did they check out a certain blog article that you spend a lot of time on? Uh, those are the ways that you can measure that social media traffic coming to your website. And while I don't think it's a good idea for brands to be everywhere just for the sake of being everywhere, I do think that you should be creating backup content and, and backing up that content that you're putting up on Instagram, you're putting up on Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, all of these different channels, you can be banned like that. And if you are banned, you have no recourse. And so there are tools out there that you can integrate into your website that creates an automatic copy of every Instagram photo that you post. It will, can post right to your website, right in a, it, it almost looks like a blog article, but it's just your caption and the photo. And you can do the same thing with Twitter. I mean, a lot of the, the the tweets that we create are almost mini blogs in and of itself. So if you're creating a, a tweet thread, then take that text. It's a little time consuming, but you can take that text and turn it into a blog article and put as seen on Twitter. If you like the content that you're seeing here, follow me on Twitter. And so then that way you're sharing those spaces. But if anything happens where you are to lose your account, supply chain queen, she recently lost her account a couple months ago. She had one of the largest supply chain accounts on Instagram and it was shut down, no rhyme or reason. And she only recently got it back. And there are a lot of stories of people who have accounts like that and they don't get them back. So it's important to set that up, to set up that backup, not only of your website, but of your social media content as well, just as an insurance policy. 
Yeah, there's a perfect description of the, the risks of social media because you don't own that, that, that space. You don't own those followers. Uh, you do own the website. Another thing that you do own that, that keeps chugging along, generating sales year after year is your email list. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on developing and growing an email list? I'm a big fan of email, but I think that it has to make sense for your audience. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of people over the weekend for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you were probably inundated with a bunch of emails. I got six emails from one brand on Cyber Monday, and it was enough to make me unsubscribe. So I think that if you are going to be in the habit of sending out emails, they need to be well worth your audience's time. You need to respect their time, respect their inbox, because it is already flooded. COVID has expanded that as well. And and it's disrupted that where we're inundated with email. So if someone's going to take the time to open up your email, do something that you want them to do, you want to make sure it's worth that effort. Uh, Morning Brew, you guys have have talked with them plenty of times. They have a great example of a newsletter that you are going to read probably 75% of the time. What the Truck has a great new newsletter that's out that that works great as well in a similar format. And so these are the the new newsletters for the people who are not necessarily staying glued to social media, but they still want, they still don't want to miss that. So you're creating that, that uh, catch up on the FOMO that you might have missed. Uh, So I think that if you're intentional with your emails and that if you are providing that value every single time, then users will get used to looking at that email and be excited about opening up that email. And, and like Kevin, you said, this is email and your website are the only things that you're ever going to own digitally. So use those to your advantage, constantly be building your email list, use your social media to point people to your email list or your website to those properties that you own, because you can take those with you anywhere. You can't necessarily take your social media accounts everywhere. You know, it's funny. So on Thanksgiving, my my father-in-law was mentioning some show he watched on network TV. And aside from Big Sky, I don't really know any shows on network TV. A lot of people just don't watch network TV. It's not the water cooler talk it used to be. But if you're on Twitter, if you're on the internet, like memes are the water cooler talk now, right? That <laughs> Those FOMO things, things the morning brew, the what the truck newsletter might cover are that water cooler talk. Those are, those are things that have wider cultural awareness than any sort of singular show, especially on network TV, TV these days, unless there's, there's something super viral. And tapping into that conversation is... Uh, is very strong. We started the show talking about, you know, 2021, how it's going to look a lot like 2020 in a remote world. What what advice would you have for sales reps who still haven't gotten completely comfortable jumping in with uh, digital marketing, digital selling and uh, appearing on Zoom calls and, and the like? I think you have to face the fact that you either have to adapt, you have to adapt to survive. And if you haven't been using this time wisely, maybe you're a little scared to jump into that video call, that video format. And it can be terrifying, but you're only going to get better at things like this unless you try. And you have to try and try again. You're going to face tech failures. You're not going to have the best equipment. And that's okay. All you need is a cell phone and a $20 microphone from Amazon in order to get started. And push out good content, 
find out, talk to your customers, talk to your potential leads, find out what they're struggling with, and then create content around those struggles and speak to it regularly. I think a lot of companies as well, they need to use their employees to the best of their advantage, especially when it comes to social media. Allow your employees the freedom to create content around the company and then use your company pages as that content curation. And so then that way you're using the maximum amount of reach that say LinkedIn gives to a personal profile versus the limited amount of reach that they give to a company page because LinkedIn wants you to pay for advertising. So they're going to apply that to a company page and they're going to have your post show up lower in the algorithm versus your personal page or your personal conduct. Um, so then I would, that's the, the route that I would take for 2021, empower your employees, give them the educational resources that they need, but also allow the flexibility for them to make a mistake or two, have some, you know, loose guidelines, you know, maybe no cursing or, you know, maybe no, nothing offensive, no, no political or religious topics. Um, maybe you just need to focus on just the company and, and the things that they do. But if you do that, then you're going to better understand your target audience. Your target audience is going to know more about you and it's going to cost you relatively less than what it would cost you on, you know, say spending thousands of dollars on print brochures that go right in the trash as soon as you get them. You know, you bring up a good exactly. point. If you're going to go in those directions, if those political or religious directions, then go all in. I mean, that make that your branding. Don't act shocked when people are uh, offended or overly receptive. You're, you're picking a polarizing stance. So if you're doing that, lean into it, but be aware of of the ups and downs. Absolutely. Yeah, and talking about content is king, content, all you need is really good content, product, product on the field. I, I, I have to ask before <laughs> before the interview is over, what's the deal with the Jaguars? Oh, no. What, what it's it is a mess. That- <laughs> we had one good year, and that was a lot of fun. 2017, went to the AFC Championship game 10 minutes away from the Super Bowl until we got a bad call from a ref. And ever since then, our, the Fran- well, not ever since then. It's really been a long history of losing. <laughs> we had one fluke season, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but there's a lot of negotiation, especially with, with the city of Jacksonville right now, trying to negotiate a new uh, stadium lease, trying to uh, uh, negotiate stadium upgrades. Um, they're trying to build an entertainment complex right next to the stadium, but they need the Jaguars in order to commit to the city long term. So it's just, it's been years and years of sort of almost instilling this fear among the fan base and Jaguar fans. I, I know that, you know, the common joke is, oh, well, I, I'm, you know, I didn't even know Jaguar fans existed. Yes, we do. There are plenty of us and we're loyal, um, but maybe perhaps a little too loyal because there's constant rumors of the team moving to L.A., moving to London. I don't think either of those scenarios are going to happen, especially after COVID. Um, But it's a situation where it's an interesting dynamic between the fan base that's being told, well, you're not viable enough. So we're going to take two home games away and send them over to London. But, hey, you should subsidize this entertainment complex that's right next to the stadium. You're viable enough for that. Uh, And it's also an entertainment complex that's closely tied to the success or failure of the Jaguars. If the Jaguars aren't in town, that entertainment complex doesn't make a lot of sense. So for me, I'm I'm very, you know, sort of vocal and passionate about this, especially if you follow me on Twitter. Um, I want the team to stay here. I want them to do well, um, but it has to, I, I don't want my fanhood held hostage anymore. Be committed yeah. to the city, be committed yeah. to the future of business opportunities in Jacksonville and and really sort of hone in on that fan base that has supported you through thick and thin, literally more thick than thin. <laughs> and it's it's 
it's a mess, but we still love the team. We still want them here. Um, slightly obsessed with, you know, watching every game, even though, you know, they're going to lose, but it's all, it's also a beautiful thing as far as like sports is concerned, because at the end of every year, there's that little glimmer of hope that, you know, we're going to get better. Mm -hmm. We have the draft coming up. Um, we're going to maybe get a quarterback. We better get a quarterback. Um, but I think it's, it's a good analogy to, or towards business and in life that, you know, you can really have a down year or a down few years, but there's always that little glimmer of hope and, and holding on to that, I, I think is really important from just a philosophical standpoint. Well, I don't even want to parallel what business, like real business, would be the Jaguars because I don't want to. I don't want to offend anybody over here. You don't even get to. You don't even get to ship them off to London this year because of COVID. Kevin Hill, he's been to the Jaguar Stadium. He wears socks in that pool while he watches the games. We started the show asking if you, Blight. So settle the debate. Do you put on your socks before you put on your pants, or do you put on your socks after you put your pants on? I would say you put them on before because oh. the time or because the type of pants that I wear, they have the, oh, yeah. the bunched up bottom. They're like the joggers. So oh. I like my socks to stay up when the oh. pants go on. So that oh. that's my reasoning. Okay. Right All right. Very scientific. Lot. Blade, where do we send people to learn more <laughs> about you and to connect? Sure. You can learn more about me and the services that I provide at digitaldispatch.io. And then if you're interested in any kind of training, especially for B2B digital marketing, you can head on over to freightschoolplaybook.com. And we have a slew of options on there in order for you to up your digital marketing game for the rest of 2020 and leading into 2021. Thank you very much. We'll see you at Thank Space you. Waves tomorrow. Space Waves yes. is live.freightwaves.com. If you're listening to this on demand, that will be Thursday, December 3rd, 9 a.m. Eastern time, live.freightwaves.com, free virtual event. It'll be all day. We're going to be talking to NASA. It's going to be dope. Thank you, Blythe. I'm excited. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin, Blythe. You are, uh, you're in Palm Springs, but I th you've already had a Space Waves conversation or two, haven't you? I have. I've had two uh, two conversations recorded uh, on, on asteroid mining. So oh, wow. they're fascinating. It, Two, two of my – they're so interesting, and, and it's great because I don't know too much about it. So there's a lot of prep work that I had to do. I, I read um, Tom James was, was one of the interviews, and he has uh, Deep Space Commodities. He wrote that book, so I, I read that, and I, I've learned so much over the last couple of weeks about uh, you know, space and, and, and technology and, and really mining and, and the quadrillions of dollars that's out there. Uh, floating around Earth that might actually hit us and kill us all one day. You know, speaking of that, I, like I, when, the first time I met Mark Weiss, our keynote speaker from uh, from NASA, he's going to be our keynote speaker at Space Waves tomorrow. But I did a Freightways Insiders with him, and I met him actually at our last in-person event in uh, Nashville in, in January. And yeah. I asked him about um, I asked him about Armageddon if it made more sense to send up a bunch of oil <laughs> drillers to the asteroid or to send up a bunch of astronauts. And he actually said the oil drillers, but now that they're doing space mining or they're getting to, they're, they're starting to think about doing space mining, you'd already have specialized space drillers. So if that asteroid tries to annihilate us, at least we'd already be ahead of that, Kevin. We would, yeah, we definitely would. So that's a that's a, a big plus. But I think <laughs> robots might do it all. I, I think we're going to send up some robots. And and, and then my other talk with uh, Denisa Scott is, is very interesting, too, because we talked about law and lawlessness and criminals and kind of the California gold rush and, and, and the crime and bad actors that, that were brought out that. So we're talking about bad actors in space kind of like the empire you'd need a lot of money to be like a space pirate at least like at like in the beginning you'd have to yeah. have a decent <laughs> amount of coin to be a space pirate um, i know, yeah, are, I are, know. We giving, kevin, are we giving kevin are we giving a book away 
Uh, we are, yes. So it'll be uh, whoever wins is their choice. I don't have a book in front of me right now. Okay, so dealer's choice. Uh, all right, let's roll the dice dealer's right choice. here. The winner is number 96 on this list. It is Lars Ward. Lars Ward, you get uh, a- any book of your choosing um, within, a, I-, I imagine, a certain reasonable uh, price range. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. like. Uh, I'll shoot over five choices. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I you know, not a first edition of a Hemingway. You know, yeah. Can't get like the first edition of the Bible. You can't get the Rosetta Stone. You got to get something you can find (laughs) on on Amazon within a reasonable, um, the reasonable price range. Kevin, is your how's your sister doing? You're out there for her leg. She's still good. She's recovering. She's she's hobbling around a little bit. I made her I made her rest for a couple days because it's swelling up, but it's going down. I do want to plug a webinar that I'm doing tomorrow. Oh, I think that they muted you probably because you were talking about something that was competing with because you're talking about something that was competing with Space Waves. So I had to hit the mute button on Kevin Hill right there. No, just kidding. I think that's a Freight Waves thing, too. But Kevin Hill's doing a webinar tomorrow. I believe I believe it is at 2 p.m. Um, I hope he's doing well over there. Uh, you can sorry. download this podcast. Uh, oh, there sorry. he is. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Zimbles, 2 o'clock Eastern time tomorrow. It's a webinar. Uh, you can sign up on, on Freight Waves. It's all about leads. Uh, they're a lead, uh, and uh, all about evaluating the leads that you have in your database too. So 2 p.m. tomorrow, Eastern Standard Time, that webinar. Perfect. You can connect with us on social media. Connect with me at Timothy Dooner. That is D-O-O-N-E-R. Look me up on Twitter or LinkedIn, Kevin Hill, Kevin Hill CL on the Twitter, or look up Kevin Hill on LinkedIn. You can find this show on your favorite podcast player of choice. Just look up, put that coffee down, or, 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 if you want every single Freightways podcast all on one feed, look up Freightcast there. You'll find uh, not just put that coffee down, not just what the truck, not just great quarter guys, but even all of our events too. So if you miss some of Freightways, some of Spaceways, you can listen to it all back right there. Thank you, everybody for joining us today on Put That Coffee Down. For Kevin Hill, I am Dooner. I got friends only want to talk business. I got expensive to win these expensive. I got expensive to win these expensive. I've been out of work. And I've been shutting out the stars. Yeah. Cause when it rain, then it pours. Yeah. And I'm ready for some more. Yeah.